You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast. Today, we have an exciting guest, Shobana Mani, and she is a strong, proven leader with a track record of successfully delivering product development to maximize returns. She's been in the industry for over 20 years with a diverse background, and she's worked in multiple industries, which was really cool about her story is she actually um, worked not just in energy, but aviation, healthcare, and oil field services. So we actually have somebody on here that started kind of in a medical aviation device field and then actually moved over into oil fields. So I think that's really neat about her. And she is currently the strategic business director for Perforating at Halliburton. Shobana, we're so excited to have you on today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me here today and being able to share my story. Thank you. Awesome, Shavana. Well, tell us from the beginning, what was life like growing up in India and how has your upbringing shaped you and who you are today? Absolutely. So I grew up uh, in the 80s in, in, uh, in a middle-class family with a very strong emphasis on values and education. And that was very typical of the time, especially when you were middle class. So uh, I just remembered, you know, growing up, we had to be extremely planned and organized almost on a daily basis, because sometimes, you know, we would get running water only for a few hours a day because, you know, with, with the growing needs of a growing population, sometimes they would, they would have to be that, that kind of rationing. Or sometimes we also had power cuts during peak season. So, you know, things are very different back uh, right now. Things would this was I'm talking about the 80s, but things were also fast developing around me. And, you know, as I was really grateful to have been to have been raised by parents who really put a lot of emphasis on education and I didn't really have any shortage to meet my needs. But I was also exposed to a side of a country that lived in extreme poverty. So early on, I developed a sense of humility and being grateful for and appreciative of what I have and not not getting used to complaining about, you know, the other side that I don't have. Um, you know, other than that, I think my father was an engineer. So early on, I developed a keen interest on math and science. It's very interesting, you know, that because that was something he loved. So that is something he would sit down and teach me. So, you know, reading and languages weren't really my strength. Um, I do okay in those fields. So I developed an interest in math, science, and solving problems. I was never into sports, and so academics and music was pretty much all I did. School was very competitive, so early on I had to work really, really hard, stay on top of my grades, stay on, you know, stay on top of things to kind of move, move ahead. Um, you know, my father also taught me early on anything is possible if you worked hard with integrity and honesty. So when I kind of put all of that together, uh, you know, those values, integrity, humility, never say die attitude, honesty, and a strong work ethic. And above all, staying, staying bold, remaining bold, especially under challenging situations, those values really kind of instilled in me, they still carry me through all these years, even to this day. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. I could only imagine growing up in, in an environment where you were had timing where you could have your water and you know what you were saying at the beginning. I'm sure that really had an impact on you. Even today, you remember that. So I'm sure you're very grateful for, for where you have you have come. Um, so 
you know, what's really interesting as well is when you finished your undergrad in 1993, you were studying um, electric, electrical engineering in India. And you mentioned to us that only 15% of your class were actually women. Uh, with the low rate of female participants, what factors push you towards this kind of degree? And why do you think there are um, not many women pursue uh, this degree in India? Absolutely. I think, you know, at the time, the, you know, the choice between different engineering fields was simple. But if I back off for a second, my father was an engineer. So he, he kind of has, he always kind of pushed that, you know, he wasn't very pushy, but he always encouraged it. So the choices and, and because things were also very competitive, once you were in academics, you know, you had to pick a field like engineering or, uh, or health, you know, or, or become a doctor. So those were kind of the choices I was going after engineering came to me a little more naturally uh, or at least the the love of engineering uh, now when it came to the disciplines i didn't want to deal with civil or mechanical engineering they just seemed a little too hard besides there were those fields had little to no women so there weren't that many role models to go after i mean i had my father who was a civil engineer but you know, I was like, oh, I'm not really sure what that is like, and I couldn't relate to that. Electrical engineering was very broad, um, and when I talked to different people, I felt like, uh, you know, you had multiple facets of it. There was a rise of the semiconductor industry. You know, we all saw Intel and things booming up. So, like, oh, that's pretty cool. And so, I felt the opportunity set was much wider. Uh, so that kind of came a little easier to me. And, and, and at the time, fields like electrical, electronics, and computer science, they had the most women. So when you say 15%, that actually came from just those few fields, not so much in other fields. Mm. And, you know, your question is very valid. You know, why is it that not many women pursue that degree? I personally believe that the factors that, you know, impede those the factors are common everywhere. And it's just to do with why do, why do we have such participation of females in STEM related degrees, right? Mm -hmm. I think at some level, there is a math phobia or a math anxiety that, that creeps in. I, I believe that is one factor that a lot of people, that, you know, potentially dissuades a lot of uh, people. Um, and, and, you know, I think I really, you know, one of the things I try to do is, you know, encourage people to, to push on, to study on, not let that anxiety hold you back, but be curious, and, and, you know, continue your passion for solving problems. And we really hope to see a much higher participation in STEM degrees. Today it's around 25, 30%. Still not enough, I feel. Still mm. a lot of room We still have work. a lot of improvement to do. Exactly, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and I agree with a lot of what you said um, in terms of one of the main reasons why I helped you get pushed is because your dad was there, right? And he was an engineer. So you have that image of somebody who's been through it. And I think for a lot of women who aren't exposed to that, engineering is just never a thing because as a society, we have a lot of work to do. We still don't even like push that towards young girls. It's usually towards the boys. It's yes. usually like, oh, here, play with Legos. You're going to be an engineer one day. And then the girls get the toys and the little kitchen, you know, mm -hmm. things yes. to play with. It's, it's really just culture, I think. And I think we've done a decent job in the last few years to try to bring more women in STEM. Um, and you see it a lot now with social media, with schools, with people going back to high schools and even elementaries to talk about engineering. Um, but I think it's really up to us, you know, even through this podcast for women like you who go talk at conferences to showcase that, hey, you can as well, because they need to be able to see that. 
Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, having strong role models is how a lot of a lot of women respond to, right? I mean, I think definitely. So, the work that that you guys are doing is fantastic, and and I and I do agree with you. Each of us has to sort of be our be strong advocates, you know, mm-hmm. rather than that things continue to improve. They don't just have small improvements, but they but they continue to have a sustained push. Absolutely, definitely. All right. Well, I remember when we spoke, uh, you mentioned that when you were going to complete your master's, you moved to the U.S. This was the very first time you ever left your house, the first time you got on a plane. I mean, this was a very big life-changing decision. How did you overcome the fear associated of leaving home? I mean, I can only imagine not just even leaving home to another school in another you know, area in India, but moving across the world to the USA. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that time in your life? And then also, once you actually got to the U.S., there must have been a culture shock. Uh, I mean, by just growing up in India to all of a sudden being in the U.S. Um, I know that when you were talking to us about it, you mentioned that there was a few, you know, periods in the beginning of your schooling where your grades did suffer. You know, you were an A-plus student in India and killing all the subjects. But with this whole transition, your grades slowly started to suffer, mainly because you couldn't understand your teachers a little bit. Can you talk about that as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, but you know, when I was uh, uh, when when I was doing my undergrad, somewhere between my sophomore year and my, my freshman year, that's kind of when you we started discussing, okay, what next? And so, you know, I was really excited with the prospect of uh, coming to the U.S. You know, pursuing my studies, pursuing higher education, get some work experience, and kind of continuing in the field of technology and product development. My father really supported me, and again, it kind of goes back to you know a lot of planning that had to go go into it, right? So I think right from my sophomore freshman year, so a lot of effort went into trying to figure out, okay, a what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? Start researching different universities, different places. You know how things are making. You know I have a few relatives in the U.S. making phone calls, trying to get more ideas from them. What is life like? You know, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So basically mentally getting ready for it. Uh, so that kind of process helped me a figure out, is this really what I want to do? Do I see myself doing it? And the good thing is, of course, you know, every step of the way, I just constantly got more and more excited and, and encouraged and just wanted to do it. Right. Um, and I think uh, back then, so I think with that planning and all that certainly helped. So by the time it came time to, you know, really get on the plane and leave, yes, I was very sad leaving my parents and my family. But one thing that really, um, really helped me was, you know, my entire family was so excited and they were so excited. And so there was a lot of enthusiasm in the air, right? So rather than, oh my God, you're leaving, it became more like, oh my God, such a great experience, you know, go there and then in a month we'll come see you. We will get a chance to come visit you and then visit all the states in the year. So it kind of was more positive. And I think that certainly helped, helped me kind of just push me through and and getting there. Uh, Coming to the U.S., of course, I went to Arizona State University Love it, loved it. Um, and one thing I have to say, I was completely blown away by the wonderful infrastructure they had. I mean, even before I came in, you know, I was in touch with the International Students Association. They had a wonderful setup where, you know, the moment you accepted admission, I mean, I, I received a letter, I received, you know, welcoming letters and a lot of information in. Uh, and they were extremely helpful in identifying different uh, housing options, 
you know, plus all kinds of useful information like, you know, hey, you have to go get a social security card and who knew what that is, right? Yeah. You know, 911, you know, things like that, that, you know, you just don't know when you just land here. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, I knew English, but then there were also classes for people whose English were, you know, for, for whom English was a second language and things like that. I was just incredibly blown away by the in organization that was pretty much volunteer led that was kind of held, uh, was there in the university. So that helped me acclimatize much quicker than I anticipated. Uh, yes, you know, you mentioned kind of, so for me, even though I knew English, uh, you know, back home, you grow up, you use, you use English, but that's not your primary language. It's usually the local language kind of blended in with English. So it was a little bit of a little bit of a break in phase where you just hear English all the time, plus getting used to the accent, which is very different. Mm-hmm. So I think that was one. And I, I was, you know, being generally uh, introverted shy person, I kind of took me a while I was uh, you know I was not very good about asking people to repeat themselves and stuff like that or if I did you know and if I didn't understand the second time I never bothered to go for the third time so it was a little hard uh, at first but gradually I overcame my fear you know I had I took the help of my advisors my professors after the first few weeks in school because I said oh my god this is not going to work out you know I can't be uh, I can't be like you know falling behind on my assignments and stuff like that so I, it took that and I pushed through a wonderful network of friends and other students. So all of that factors helped in pushing us through. Uh, and I think that that was my biggest takeaway, just the strength of the, uh, the student community we had and, and you know, how incredible help, incredibly helpful we were in helping each other push through. So. That's what's really awesome about what you just said is, the setup that the, the school gave you being an international student. Um, I think a lot of people listening, we have a lot of international people who listen to the podcast. And I think that's really going to help them as they choose a school and understand, like, even if you don't have not because I believe probably not everybody has that amazing support that you had of your family and they seem very excited for you to go. So that makes complete sense on why you're like, Oh, no problem. I'm out. Family supports me. But for those who might not have that, I think just, you sharing that information that, hey, you know, even if you might not have the support from your family, this school fully supports you and you're not going into it blindly. So I think that, um, you know, really helped in your transition. Absolutely. And, and I know it was, ASU was not alone because number of my friends, you know, number of people that uh, made the trip with, with me and landed in different schools, they also spoke of similar experiences. So I think the universities overall, like like I said, I didn't know what to expect. And I was just blown away by the setup they had because they realized that, you know, they had a large population and, you know, in our success lies their success. So they kind of, you know, definitely try to identify the, identify what, what support we may, we may need and, you know, really help us, help us provide that. So switching, switching gears to your career, um, you actually started in the medical industry and I believe then you went on to aviation um, and then you actually ended up transitioning into oil and gas. Can you talk about the differences between the two industries? Because a lot of times you hear people moving from oil and gas, maybe to medical, um, but you actually did, you know, the opposite. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I actually started my career in consumer electronics with Philips briefly before I came to GE. And in GE, then I worked on healthcare products, CT imaging, 
then of course, like you mentioned, within GE, uh, design products for aircraft engines, steam turbines, then I moved to coal gasification before coming to oil and gas. Uh, and, and it was kind of interesting because when I moved to coal gasification in 2006, back there, there was a lot of investment in that field as part of making uh, America energy independent, right? And that's the same factors that led to a lot of investment in oil and gas as well. So I think, uh, so when I, so from there I came to Halliburton, I'm here, uh, you know, I think this, this industry is great. Of course, you asked me specifically about the medical and oil and gas. So let me kind of zoom in on that for a little bit. At the outset, you know, a lot of that transition in my career happened in the field of product development. So techno new technology, uh, R&D, product development, that kind of things. So I think, um, and that was kind of my life up until a few months ago when I changed roles to my current one. So from a product development stand standpoint, there are a lot of similarities, which kind of helps make the transition from one industry to another a lot more smoother than, than for example, if you were in a customer facing role and you that, that becomes a different dynamic. So for example, at the outset, what do you want from your product? Everybody wants better performance at a lower cost. That's it, right? So if the moment you say, what do you want? That's, that's exactly what you're going to hear. And more user-friendly, high reliability, all of that kind of, you know, if you, they get lumped into the product performance umbrella. And when you kind of, then you double click on it, the methods that we use, the way we develop products, you know, using scientific methods, experimental techniques, you know, statistical tools for analysis of data, that's kind of the same. So from that standpoint, whether you are developing a CT imaging machine to be used to diagnose, you know, abnormalities in a human being, the methodology, the underlying methodology is the same if you're going to be doing that to be put in a downhole tool for reservoir insights in oil and gas. So I think from that standpoint, you know, if you have a passion for learning and kind of keeping up with trends in your respective domain, I think that that's the key to solving challenges. And that's the beauty of innovation, because you may learn something in one domain that you can kind of go and apply in another one. Uh, what may not, so I think, and what may not be obvious to everyone, and I know you asked about differences, but I'm going to highlight one thing, which is more of a similarity, is that we use the same underlying um, measurement, technolo measurement technologies, if you will, for diagnosis, whether it is for, you know, in the medical field for humans, as well as for reservoir insights. A lot of the stuff is similar. And, and I do believe a lot of that happened because people learn from each other, right? Healthy innovation happens when you have people from different industries learning from each other, they cross each other, and that helps turn into, turn into new products. Uh, one of the key, I wouldn't say this is a major difference, but if you really want to just boil down to a lot of things, in medical industry, precision is important because a person's life and imminent life and death decisions are made, right? So precision is key. Uh, and so the resulting, so even though the product development cycle and all that is the same, the trade-offs that get made when you choose, when you make product feature decisions is very different, for example, than when it comes to Reservoir Insight, where, you know, I'm not saying precision is not important, don't get me wrong. You do need that, but then you have multiple other points that you can triangulate and so it becomes a lot more broader discipline based, if you will. So I think what intrigued me about oil and gas, and this is something, it's an important point because even though I kind of moved across these different industries, then 
you know, GE was a um, uh, was in different industries at once, right? So it was easy to move around within that. I felt like I knew a little bit about it just from general awareness and knowledge, but I knew so little about oil and gas, especially when it comes to drilling the the stuff that oil field services companies like Halliburton do, right? I knew so little about about that so i didn't know how complex the drilling process was and then the the you know all these different measurements that we that we do and i make that point because you know when we look at the work we do the process of drilling collect measurements you know extracting insights and all of that all of that that complex uh, evaluation analysis that goes into drilling, completing a well, and then continuing with production is really a rich, fertile ground for people with STEM backgrounds, varied STEM backgrounds. You know, you need all engineering, science, all disciplines. They have a perfect opportunity to work on, on such a set of complex, challenging problems and to be able to make a difference, to make a difference by providing energy, access to energy for the world. So I think, I think that was something which really struck me about this industry. And I was so, you know, and I was like completely blown away, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm excited every day, every day coming to work, even though now we're working from home. So coming to work is, you know, just changing rooms, but still it just keeps me excited and keeps me looking forward to the next day, the next set of challenges. Yeah, awesome. So let's talk about that transition. So you were in GE after Philips for a few years. You did aviation, medical equipment. Then you did a little transition as well into coal gas conversions um, as well as within GE. And then you mentioned that there was kind of like a shale boom, shale revolution going on around that year. And a lot of people were leaving GE to go to Halliburton uh, or just leaving GE in general to go to oil field service companies. And you kind of took that jump as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the transition and how did you end up in Halliburton? Absolutely. So when we were in coal gasification back then, you know, that was, there was definitely, you know, a lot of push. We were building uh, integrated gasification combined cycle, basically a, a, a power plant that took, that took coal, dirty coal, coal of any sorts com- converted to electricity. But in the process, it also make by, by making what we call synthesis gas that, you know, so, so that process was very different from just a regular uh, steam turbine, uh, steam powered, um, uh, steam powered cycle. So, so that, so the lot of investment was, was being made around that time. But then I think at the same time the shale boom took over and, you know, obviously that technology, we, we were really able to uh, propel oil and gas production all onto an entirely new different level, right? And then we all see how we have become energy independent or on, or on a path towards that. So from that standpoint, so, so obviously there was a lot of hiding in that industry. So I began to hear about it. Uh, my own manager at the time, he left and then he joined Halliburton. So he contacted me a few months later. He said, hey, how about this? You know, there's this opportunity. Why don't you come find out, learn more? And of course, I had an open mind. I said, oh, sure, you know, sounds like a great challenge. I was also a point in my career where, you know, I had been six years with coal gasification, you know, I had done a few different roles, done well. So it's not like I was kind of looking to leave GE particularly, but I was kind of really excited about the prospect of something new. Um, so I said, all right, this is a chance for me to try something new, this this field, and, and this field definitely sounds fascinating. 
Um, and so I, so I took the chance, came to Halliburton and have not looked back since. And it was, what was really eye-opening was, again, like I said, you know, I joined Sperry Drilling. So they, you know, they obviously their, their focus is on drilling, uh, drilling and evaluation technologies. Uh, and so as when I came in, I came in as the uh, electrical, electrical manager. And so all, it was interesting. It was kind of a coming full circle for me because now I was in charge of the group that were building these uh, products, bunch of electrical engineering engineers, building these products involving technologies that I had done in the medical field, you know, several years ago, right? You know, when we did CT, CT, um, uh, CT products, uh, ultrasound products. Well, guess what? The same measurement principles are applied here. They're just packaged differently. And I learned a few little tricks that, that are done here that are done differently in different industries. And it's kind of you need to see how the same thing, you know, the same basic building block can be applied creatively uh, and packaged differently to solve a different problem. So it's kind of neat to see that. Um, so I think within Halliburton, obviously, the so I think that's, that's what started my journey in Halliburton. And of course, I've had a few roles since then. What's really neat about that is that you just talked about, you know, ultrasounds and how that actually is, is, is a technology that you can use in oil and gas. And I'm pretty sure nobody has ever heard that before until now. Um, and I think that's, that's really neat that you shared that with us. I had no idea, um, you know, that that had a cross function, right? But it makes sense because all the technologies that you probably use in medical can then be used and, you know, the equipment that we use down hole, because I'm sure there's a lot of similarities in the sensors and, and stuff that you develop. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you took on the role of a technology director over drill bits, and then you moved on to actually the uh, director of technology for wireline. So you went from drilling to a completions role. Um, can you talk about this transition and what advice you'd give to someone who might be walking into a very different role than where they started? You know, especially right now, there's, you know, so much movement in the industry and there's so many people that, you know, are changing jobs and they might have to change complete careers. And, you know, you changed over from, um, from a, a drilling uh, department into a completions department. And I think a lot of people might be experiencing that same thing. Um, so can you talk about that transition? No worries. Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, the one rule that I follow myself and I tell others too is just believe in yourself and have the courage to take steps outside your comfort zone, you know, to take roles outside your comfort zone, because that's when growth occurs and that's when you stretch yourself. So the few pointers I try to follow is, you know, when, when I moved across these different roles, you know, so the so first thing is I try to learn as much as I can about the new about the new role about the new domain you know what both the technical and the business side you know who, who what does that business do what products do they make how do they sell who do they sell to who are their customers and also internally trying to understand who who's your who's your audience and the one thing which i learned over time is learning the culture of the organization because many times, even with a company, you know, you have different departments and different departments could have their own underlying different subcultures and subcultures and cultures is not just about how people talk to each other or how things are done, but that 
gives you the framework about how even decision making is done and how people interact with each other. So it's kind of important to observe that, learn that, and then adapt your working style accordingly. Now, you don't want to, you still want to stay true to who you are. You just want to be able to adjust so that, you know, then you're also setting yourself up for success. Uh, the other thing also is to leverage your network. Now, uh, I've been with the Halliburton, it'll be nine years in May. So obviously kind of built a network through different, uh, through my different roles as well as through my different associations. So you want to be able to leverage that network and then use them to kind of help you navigate through the uh, organization to understand how are decisions made, how things get done. And that will also help you understand how to set yourself up for success, how to set up your team uh, for success as well. And then lastly, you know, when you take on different roles now, of course, now I'm in a managerial role. So I do have a team that I have learning to leverage your team, learning to trust your team uh, to kind of help you uh, as well as helping you help them as well. A lot of times I think, uh, you know, we, we get so focused on trying to learn everything ourselves, we kind of forget that we do have that team around us. So being able to leverage the team, you know, and that also gives them the ownership, you know, and the ability to shine, which is also important because as a leader, you need to make sure your people are given the opportunities to rise and shine. And so they can be ready for bigger and better opportunities for themselves. So those are a few elements that I try to follow and 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 they're kind of generic so no matter where you go which role you can kind of apply them in some way you know and just kind of reformat it and apply it thank you for so sharing I, I really like that perspective thank you thank um you. so you are obviously very passionate about dni and you've participated in many workshops within Halliburton, external ones you've spoken at different conferences here in houston what, what do you think companies should be focusing on in order to retain a diverse workforce, especially because one, in oil and gas, we don't have that many to begin with, but two, yeah. retention is also very difficult, especially for service companies. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. You rightly pointed out, you know, as a business community, we spend a lot of time talking about diversity, but I fundamentally believe when it comes to retention, inclusion needs to be the true outcome we strive for. You know, because inclusion is where is what creates employee engagement and through employee engagement, a companies get higher levels of productivity, but you also get employee retention because people feel like they belong in that culture and then they're willing to, then they kind of are performing at their best levels. So I think um, when it comes to that, when it comes to retention and building a culture of inclusion, I feel like overall, Companies are kind of getting there, but, you know, overall, I think we are missing the mark. So I think one way to do that, and this is just one of the many ways, um, obviously, I'm not saying this is the only way. One way to do that is really to have family-friendly policies at work. And I say this because things like flexible work arrangements, you know, paid parental leave, they, these are things that are kind of catching on, but they're catching on very slowly. And unfortunately, what happens is the lack of these end up tending to have a, a larger negative impact on female employees versus male employees. And obviously, when you start implementing these policies, just because you have something at work doesn't mean change will happen overnight. I think as a business community, as leaders, as all of us, we need to build a culture 
So let's take paid parental leave, for example, just as an example. I think we need to build a culture that supports uh, a gender-neutral paid parental leave, right? Because then what happens is it encourages both men and women whenever they have a child to take the leave. And then all of a sudden, when somebody takes a paid parental leave, it is not seen as a disruption. Because right now, a lot of people, they, they are either afraid of making those adjustments, so they end up either quitting the workforce. I've known so many of my friends that, you know, after having children, they they sort of eventually uh, eventually leave, right? And that's very sad to see. Um, so I think if you if you if you create a culture within our company that it is not seen as a disruption, that it is just a, just a small you know it's just a minor um, just a minor pause. It is not a disruption. I think that is what will make. Uh, they make the culture more inclusive, more inclusive, and then it'll also encourage women to stay more. And that needs to be reinforced at all levels. You know, simply talking at the top doesn't help. It needs to come down. And I believe the make or break level is a frontline supervisor level. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times they they if they don't have the tools or if they're not talking to their employees on on many of these topics and encouraging that culture of inclusion, encouraging employees to perform in their best and kind of recognizing that, then I think, uh, then I think we are missing, missing the mark. But ultimately, I do believe that if you pre- once you create that, once you create that framework, you know, you also build a culture of trust, of inclusion, where everybody feels valued, everybody feels respected. And that's also the essential ingredient for building high performing teams to accomplish, you know, your business goals. You know, what you just said really speaks to me as I'm 33 weeks pregnant. So I've been going through the maternity policies and talking to my husband about like what he can do. And you're right. It is very one-sided. It's like, um, you know, you're, I'm giving this and then he's not expected anything. And it's like, well, then that puts it all on you. And so then it's like, oh, well, it's only acceptable for me, but then why can't you help? Because then if both parties were helping and both, and both the companies from both sides approve that, I think men would have a different understanding of what all is entailed in that, right? So, and, and I think that is a mark that is missed. And I, and I do see a change, like our company just implemented where um, the, uh, the, the men's, uh, it's called, um, oh, I can't remember what the, what the guy's version of maternity Maternity. leave is called. Yeah, paternity leave. Um, They did it like two weeks, but hey, at least it's, they're starting something. that way they can see, you know, the benefits of that. And then also, you know, the guys themselves, since, since it is a male dominated industry, you know, you might be the only woman in the group and then you're taking these three months off and then all your colleagues might think, I don't know, maybe they don't have kids yet. So they might have different ideas about those three months off. Right. So I, um, I, I totally agree with that statement that you said. And, and I think that that would really help, um, you know, the overall understanding of, of what women have to go through and then have to come back to work after that and catch up. And, you know, I, I think it would, it would really help. No, perfect. No, thanks. No, and I um, yeah, wish you good luck. You know, hopefully you know, everything works out well. I, I remember my days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll do great. I'm sure you'll. Yeah, so my company's very supportive, so I'm I'm lucky in that. But I've heard horror stories, so I can I can see that as well. Um, one other thing we wanted to ask you uh, before we sign off here is, you know, you have ran multiple teams, um, and you know, as we were just speaking earlier, uh, there isn't a lot of women management. You know, I, I 
they're, it's getting better, but the percentages are low across the board just because they haven't been given that opportunity or maybe at the ground level, there just hasn't been that many women to pick from. Um, you know, what experiences have you had, uh, you know, leading a group as a woman and, you know, bringing that diversity to the table um, in a positive way? You know, what are some of the attributes that you think have helped along your career path in doing that? No, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, from, from my standpoint, I think certainly one of the things that has helped me and, and certainly, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for to my to my current employers at Halliburton. I mean, I've worked for, you know, an incredibly great set of managers who believed in, you know, who, who believed in promoting the best talent. And they made sure that, you know, they paid attention to diversity and created a culture and framework for inclusion so that, you know, so that it was an equal playing field. It wasn't somebody getting left behind and having to kind of fend off for themselves. So I'm certainly extremely thankful for that. I think some of the, uh, but uh, for, you know, when you were asking me the question, it made me reflect back. I think fundamentally, I believe, you know, women bring a different set of traits to the table, right? Uh, It doesn't mean it's, it's not all the time. I'm, you know, I'm just kind of highlighting at a high level. So I think certainly traits like, you know, we, we empathy, empathy comes comes to mind. I think when we look at female leaders on on an average, I mean, I think you can generally expect higher levels of uh, higher than average levels of empathy. And I think for me that has served me well because. I think all my life, and I'm sure you can relate to that, right? When you're in a male-dominated field, you're constantly having to look at the world through the lens of others, right? You Because you constantly have to figure out, okay, how, because that's kind of how you have to position your ideas, position your thoughts, do whatever, and be successful. So I think that naturally gives us the ability to have the empathy, and be, and that has given me an ability to connect with my teams, and it has helped me build the trust uh, with with my team, with people that I work with, much more much more easily than I would have otherwise thought it to be. So for me, that has been my source of strength. So when I so that has helped me build incredibly strong networks. So even when people have left, uh, we've of course our industry has been through number of down cycles. So number of people you know have to be had to be let go. But you know a lot of people have still main stayed in touch with touch with me because. Uh, we've kind of developed the the the, uh, the connection over the years, so I think uh, that has been a strength that has guided me. I have I also feel that you know uh, the ability to to listen to multiple viewpoints at once has also helped in creating a culture where we we listen, we share before we make any decisions, as opposed to trying to jump on the first piece of information you get and then. And then you kind of go headlong into it and then realize it was probably not not the best decision. So I think that was something that that is also that is also a strength of mine. And uh, one of the incredible opportunities I had in uh, when I was in Drillbits was I, I stayed in that when I was in that position, I had the opportunity to redefine some of the product portfolio that we had. Um, and in that process, obviously, we, we brought in some new leaders. So I had the opportunity to bring in some extremely strong uh, female leaders who, who even who are doing extremely well even today in Halliburton. I'm really proud to see them grow and develop. 
And so through that, I felt like we built a team that where, um, where diversity and inclusion were, were respected, were promoted, and everybody's ideas were heard. So when we made decisions, you know, we made sure that everybody's voice was heard. Right. And if you had nothing to say, that's fine. But but definitely we didn't we didn't uh, make anyone feel left out. So I I take pride in that. And that is something I strive to do is to make sure that, you know, we work together as a team. We we uh, we make sure we are giving a giving an opportunity for everybody's voices to be heard and collectively make, we make the best decision for the best outcome for the company. Yeah, no, that's amazing. It has, you have all the qualities of a great leader, especially one that creates a culture where everybody feels comfortable to talk, to lift their hand, to, you know, take a seat at the table. And I think that's, what's really fun is that you being in that management role, we're able to create a team of other females and kind of it's, you know, then they'll do the same. And then it kind of starts slowly creating that change that we've all been wanting throughout the company. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for being on here today and sharing your story. Uh, we really appreciate everything that you are doing for women and for women in STEM, not just women in oil and gas, but continue to talk at conferences and continue to do these podcasts if you can, because like you said, women really need role models and uh, it's really important for us to continue to do this. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And I must say, this is a great initiative. This is definitely a great podcast you, you guys have. Yeah. Wish you good luck and uh, wish you all the best for your new baby. Jimmy. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you have a great rest of your Friday. Yeah, you too. Have a good right. one. Bye. Bye. See y'all.